So today we're going to finish this series on beginnings, and then next week we have uh, Alex Mitala from Uganda here. And are you excited about that? Yeah, I think that's always fun, right? It's always fun just to have someone black up here speaking, right? Isn't it true? With an accent and the local church, and, and I love him. But anyway, um, and then after that, I'm going to start uh, my series on Revelation. So we're going to go from beginnings to endings, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. But today I want to finish this series on beginnings, the first couple of chapters of, of Genesis. And uh, I want to really tie together a whole bunch of of threads, things that I've kind of come back to and, and in and around and repeated. I want to tie a kind of a review today. I want to tie it all together. And uh, I want to leave us with something that I think is, is uh, really important. But before we get into all that, let me just read to you. I know this is a, a series on beginnings, but I want to finish this, mess, this uh, series by uh, starting with a passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. And it says this, But even if you should suffer... For righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, speaking of people out in the world, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always be ready to make a defense. Now, I think a lot of Christians nowadays are sort of overwhelmed by that command. It's sort of almost fearful. Do I have to have an answer to every single question that's out there? Do I have to memorize all kinds of facts. And kind of one of the things I hope that you get out of this message is that command is a very real command. We need to be ready to make a defense for what we believe. And that's a lot what this series has been about. This has been a series, uh, very much foundations for the mind. But I really think that this paradigm, now again, and some people do it better than others. Some people, that's their desire. It's the way God's wired them. They love to study the facts, and they love to give people apologetic facts, and that's amazing. Some people are gifted to do that, and they should. There's no one-size-fits-all for evangelism, obviously. But but my point is, and the thing as I tie together this series is, I think if we have a new paradigm for properly understanding, particularly the Old Testament and Genesis, where many attacks against our faith are aimed, uh, I actually think it becomes simpler to defend our faith. And I hope by the end of this message, you're not going to feel overwhelmed with a need to memorize facts, unless you're one of those people that loves to do that and is gifted to that. That's great. But I'm hoping that at the end of this message today, some of the stuff we've been talking about in this series is all going to come together and you're going to realize actually defending the Bible is a lot easier than we thought. It just takes a different set of glasses of, of looking at it. But anyway, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Let's pray to Jesus and then, and then let's, uh, let's get into this. Lord Jesus. I just feel so blessed to be a part of this church family. I just feel, I feel lucky. And uh, what you're doing here, Lord, in growing us. And uh, you, are, you are a wonderful God to serve. And a wonderful Lord, creator of everything that exists. And Holy Spirit, I just, I just desire that you would really touch our hearts today. You would speak to us in this message. Help it to make sense. Even when I sometimes don't. Help it to make sense to us. And may we walk away from this message in this series with more confidence, but a better confidence. Not only more confidence, but actually better confidence in your word and who you are than we had before. In your precious name we pray, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. You know, one of the pictures, last night, uh, 
you know, during the six o'clock service, I, I had this picture come to my mind, and I shared it. I'm going to share it now, too. Uh, one of the uh, one of sort of the pictures for how I sort of view this series going forward is this idea, what I just prayed, of having better confidence, not just more confidence in the Word of God, but better confidence. I feel like uh, there's an undercurrent of fear in many Christians today, a distinct undercurrent, uh, undercurrent of fear that, you know, if I look at some of the arguments out there, that if I hear some of the things that are going on out there that smart people who don't believe in the Bible and who attack the Bible and there's, you know, increasingly we're living in this culture that is anti-Christian and trying to poke holes in the Bible, there's sort of this fear that if I entertain any of those questions, if I listen to any of those questions, if I think about any of those questions, if I ask any of those questions, I actually know, I've taught, had t- uh, discussions with people in this church where there's actually was certain questions they were afraid to ask. They were afraid where those questions would lead them. They were afraid, is God upset if we ask them? And there's sort of this undercurrent of fear. And what I see some Christians, how they respond to that fear, is we sort of try to build up this wall around us and kind of shut out the world. I don't want to hear those questions that disturb me. Because I'm actually afraid. I'm actually afraid maybe the Bible doesn't hold up. Maybe our beliefs about God don't hold up. So what I'll do is I'll kind of hide myself. We'll build a wall around ourselves and we'll only read things that make us feel good. We'll only read arguments that, that just reinforce our beliefs. We won't entertain the other ones, and we'll just kind of feel safe. Now, for a lot of Christians, actually, it's fine. It's fine to live in there. I don't think it's ever great to live uh, on fear. I actually believe the more we study what we believe and the more we study even the various attacks on what we believe— I actually, the older I get and the more I study and read, and I've done a lot of reading and study in my life, the more I feel so solid. I just love God's Word. I'm more confident than ever that this is actually God's Word and that what we believe is true. I'm just 100% confident. It, it, it Literally, there's nothing that scares me anymore. You can bring me the most scientific arguments, the most philosophical, the most anti-biblical, and say, you know, these are the attacks, these are the kind of the best ones out there. And I've just seen so much already. I'm just confident this thing is true. But I know for some Christians, that's, they, don't, they don't want to go there to those things. So they're hiding. And that's okay for some. But you know what? Uh, as, as, you know, kind of this anti-Christian spirit grows and envelops us in our culture, that kind of idea that I'm just going to hide behind my wall is not going to hold up for the next generation. It's not going to. I know of a person in this church and in a school in this area, had a teacher come into their class. This would have been unheard of, you know, uh, 22 years ago when I was in high school, okay? But actually went into the class and basically was mocking Christianity outright in class, saying it's ignorant, it's all sorts of things, and bringing all these scientific arguments directly against Christianity. So, you know, for some of us, it's okay to hide behind our walls and just read things that agree with us. But for the next generation, they're not going to have that, you know, they're not going to have that, you know, experience of just being able to hide some, some things. The walls are all coming down. And the internet already gives everybody access to all the arguments that are out there. And so I have really believed throughout this series, at times, I have been willing to go places that for some of you are a little uncomfortable but I almost view it as getting a shot. You know, when they give you your vaccinations, they put something in you that is a little bit uncomfortable and ultimately is not that great for you, but then your body builds up 
immunity so that it can fight off the real disease, right? And I just think I have a value of just truth. I just want to know truth. I don't want to know fake arguments that make me feel better. I want to know truth. And I think in this church, I think uh, talking about those truths at the, at the deepest levels, even if it makes us uncomfortable at times, I just believe so much in the truth and that Jesus is the truth that in the end, if we'll go through that uncomfortable process, we're going to end up standing on a foundation. And so I want to tie this series together today, but I want to use the example of Noah's flood. And two weeks ago, so last week we had Ron Pierce, and that was amazing. He always is. And uh, telling us about stuff going on in the world. Uh, but two weeks ago, we talked about this issue that there's a number of other creation stories out there. Right? There's different creation stories out there. The Genesis creation account is not the only one. Other ancient peoples had creation stories. And there's actually similarities. Okay? That's not, that's not something Christians need to be afraid of. That's actually just the truth. There's actually similarities between some of the creation stories. And we, and we looked at the fact that the reason for that is not because that, that doesn't prove that Genesis is just a myth like all the other myths. What it proves is that uh, Moses, when he wrote the book of Genesis, was an ancient uh, Israelite in the ancient Near East and had a similar worldview with the other peoples of that time. And so, of course, some of that worldview comes into what he's writing. And there's overlap with some of these other things. Well, I also mentioned the flood in that one. And I'm going to use the flood as sort of our example in this message. It'll be kind of the example that we're looking at, but that has implications for so many other things in how do we stand up for our faith in a way that is not overly uh, complicated or fearful, but in a way that is uh, strong. And one of the things I mentioned there two weeks ago is that just like there are many different creation stories out there, and some of them have some very real similarities to the creation story in Genesis, and that's just true. I'm not making that up. That's, that's just the reality of how it is. Another reality that many Christians are not uh, aware of is there are many flood stories out there. There are at least two or three different ancient flood stories out there, and, and, and uh, you can actually, some people count many more than that, but there's at least two or three um, dozen, and particularly, and some of them are actually older than Genesis, particularly there's two Middle Eastern ones from the same area as ancient Israel. One of them is the Epic of, of Gilgamesh, and it's actually quite a bit older than Genesis, and it actually has many, many similarities to Genesis. And this is one of those things that a lot of Christians, they just want to stay in their little walls and just pretend that this isn't happening, that these things don't exist, and then they send their kids off to university, and their kids hear this, and the university professor says, look, this is proof. Genesis is just copied from these other myths. It's just another myth. So you say, why, why would you bring that up in church here today? Well, I bring it up because I know I, lots of godly people and intelligent people have looked at that evidence and still believe that the Bible is God's word. And you say, well, how can you believe that? Well, first of all, to me, the fact that there's two or three dozen or more flood myths out there doesn't prove to me that Genesis isn't true. It's evidence for me that something must have actually happened. That's why so many people have this memory of a flood. Why do so many people around the world, why do so many ancient peoples around the world have stories that have been passed on for thousands of years about a flood if a flood didn't happen? So I actually think the fact that there's these other myths is actually strong evidence that the story of the flood is actually Real. And I'll just show you, by the way, some of the parallels. I just want to put them up on the PowerPoint. And uh, some of the parallels between the Gilgamesh epic in particular, which is older than Genesis, probably by a couple of thousand years. Um, but I want you just to see some of the uh, similarities between 
the Genesis flood and the Gil- Gilgamesh epic. First of all, God, or in the case of the Gilgamesh epic, it's the gods, decide to destroy humankind because of wickedness. That's in both stories. In both stories, you have a righteous man, uh, Noah in the Genesis flood, I think his name is Utnapishtim in the Gilgamesh epic. A righteous man was directed to build an ark, so and it's, it's an ark, to save a limited group of people and animals. That's in both stories. Uh, number three, a great rain. In both stories, a great rain uh, covers the land and mountains with water. In both stories, uh, in, in Noah and Utnapishtim, in the Gilgamesh epic, at the end of the flood, they release birds to find the land. Both stories. This is, this is reality. This isn't made up. This isn't, you know, atheists making something up to attack the Bible. This is real. Okay? In, in, in the Genesis story, Noah releases a raven and three doves. In the Gilgamesh story, it's a raven, a dove, and a swallow. So even the bird, it's very similar. Lots of similarities. You can see why secular, you know, archaeologists and professors and atheists and stuff would jump on this and say, see, Genesis is just another myth. Uh, so, and I'll put just a few more points on there just to show you uh, this. Um, what are the next ones? I just turned... Oh, I got it on here anyway. After the rain cease, both arks come to rest on a mountain. Noah's comes to rest in Genesis on the mountains of Ararat. It's not technically the mountain of Ararat. It's the mountains. It's the area of Ararat. Of Ararat. Uh, and Pishtim's comes to rest on a mountain of Seir. These are actual mountains that are about 300 miles apart. So it's even the same geographical area. In both stories, sacrifices were offered after the flood. And in both stories, at the end, God, or the gods in the, in the Gilgamesh epic, promised not to destroy humankind again. So you can see there, those are two very similar stories. But again, uh, to me, it's very clear, and to many apologists and great Christian thinkers through the centuries, C.S. Lewis and many others who have looked at this, and they say, look, this is, a, this is an actual thing that happened, and the memory is preserved. Now, in Genesis, we have the inspired version. And again, we looked two weeks ago at some of the purposes of, of Genesis. Genesis is, is a theological message that it's the God of Israel who created everything, not these other gods. And the sun and the moon and the stars are not things to be worshipped. They are created things, okay? So that's a really important thing for all of us to understand. This, these walls that we're hiding behind, the culture is going to wash them down anyway. So we may as well in the church turn around and have the courage to face what's coming, and see that the Word of God actually stands through all this. But now I want to talk about a different kind of attack that comes on Noah's flood, not just, you know, the myth attack. And again, I'll just use another example I heard recently, because this is what our young generation is facing right now. You might not be facing it wherever it is that you're in your life, but our young people are facing this and will face this, and it will only get more. I heard of another young person in our church just recently, was uh, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, speaking to a friend. They wanted to speak to them about Jesus. And, and I just love that about our young people, just missional. And uh, this person looked at them and, and said, uh, I could never believe in the Bible. How can you believe in something like Noah's flood? And then they went on to say, how could you believe that water could cover the whole planet over the mountains? And like, how could that even happen? Where would all the water come from? And how could... Uh, all of the animal, like uh, members of every species, fit into the ark. And, and so that was a question. Now again, by the way, are people bad when they ask those questions? Isn't that what seeking people should do, ask questions? And this is, you know, I read you First Peter at the beginning. It feels like some of his Christians are annoyed 
at these questions. Of course they're asking these questions. Now the thing is, I've seen Christians answer this question in different ways. And there are better ways of answering this question, and there are less better ways. And then there are ways that are borderline embarrassing. And I don't mean that these people are bad for doing them. I, I always appreciate any Christian who has the courage to stand for their faith, even if they don't get it all right or if they don't agree with everything I would think or that I would do, I just say way to go to anybody who has the courage to stand for their faith today. Amen. Amen. It's not bad. But there certainly are better ways to answer this and there are less better ways, and there are even embarrassing ways to answer this, I believe. And when I say embarrassing, I don't just mean it disagrees with what I believe. Even if you take it from an angle that I wouldn't take, even within that, there are better ways, and there are some borderline embarrassing ways. But one of the ways that many Christians approach this, or I should maybe not many, but some, is they want to do all the calculations. So let's calculate how big, how, what was the square footage of the ark, and let's calculate how many different species there were on the earth, and then let's just figure out, you know, how many decks would we need in the ark, and how would we squish them all in? See, they could all fit. I mean, they barely breathed. You know, there was nowhere for you to clean up the pee or the poo, but, but, it, but you know, it works. You know, some, they, we do calculations. Now, again, that's not bad. Some Christians are really passionate about that, and they want to study that, and they want to do that. I think that's fine. I think for most Christians, that's not actually the way to go, and I'll tell you the reason why. I don't think that answer is a great way to answer. First of all, the vast majority of Christians will never remember all the calculations. But second of all, I've done a lot of reading in this area, a lot over the years and a lot recently. And one of the things I'm very passionate about is not just reading people who agree with me. I'm always interested because a lot of Christians, they just want to stop there. Get, find me a one-page article on the internet that tells me, oh, they all would have fit and I feel good. That's what I mean by putting ourselves in walls so that we can feel good about our faith rather than fearlessly saying, I actually believe this is the word of God and if it does, it'll stand against anything. And so I will deliberately go and search out what do smart people, because I, I feel like sometimes, and this is where the first Peter comes in about respect, I feel like sometimes Christians have this idea that if you're an atheist or you're a non-believer, you're automatically an idiot because you just don't want to believe in the Bible. There are a lot of smart people who don't believe in Jesus. Can we just say that? And even that makes some of you scared. It's easier to believe they're all dumb because it just makes us feel like, yeah, see, we have the right way. But when you think that some of them are smart, that can actually be a bit scary. And you go and you read some of their arguments. So I've read some of their responses to the calculations. And you know what the calculations do? Just bring more ridicule. So how should a Christian answer a question like that? And I think a paradigm shift is needed. And it's what I've been kind of building towards in this series. But now I want to give you another example. So in this message, the flood is an example of something I'm trying to get to and tie everything together from the series. But now within that example, I've got an example, okay? So just track with me. I want to go back to a historical example. This is really important because I want to talk about the relationship between science in the Bible. And this is just, I think it's just so foundational. But I want to go back to a historical example. I want us to look at this because I think it's incredibly instructive for us. But I've talked in this series a little bit about Martin Luther and how he defended his wrong picture of astronomy. Martin Luther and everybody in his age and earlier thought the sun revolved around the earth, not the other way around. And that's not bad that they thought that. It doesn't make them stupid. It's just they didn't know any better. 
It's not bad that Martin Luther and John Calvin and, and the writers of Scripture, we'll get to that, and the early church fathers thought the sun revolved around the earth. That's all they knew. So it's not bad. By the way, I wonder how many things we believe wrong right now. Do we know everything about science there is to know? Not a chance. So we still, right now, have things that we believe about science and the universe that are totally wrong, and in 50 or 100 years, if Jesus hasn't come back yet, they'll look back on us and say, oh, so cute. <laughs> so it's not bad that Martin Luther and John Calvin and some of these great men who were very intelligent men believe wrong things about astronomy, but the mistake came when they tied their wrong view of science directly to the Bible and says the Bible defends this. So Martin Luther and John Calvin, now I've got to read you this quote because this is good. I read you a Martin Luther one a couple weeks ago. Let me read you a John Calvin one. This one's even better, okay? And my point in doing this is not to make fun of John Calvin. It's to give us all a lesson. He was a smart man, okay? And he loved the Bible. There's no question. This is what John Calvin says about the, the sun revolving around the earth and about people who deny that. He's going to really go after us today. The Christian is not to compromise, he says, so as to obscure the distinction between good and evil and is to avoid the errors of those dreamers who have a spirit of bitterness and contradiction who reprove everything and prevent the order of nature. We will see some who are so deranged, not only in religion, but who in all things reveal their monstrous nature that they will say that the sun does not move and that it is the earth which shifts and turns. You know that John Calvin thinks everyone here today, unless you're a flat earther. <laughs> and hopefully there's not too many of you, although I love you dearly. <laughs> that you have a monstrous nature if you think the earth revolves around the sun. This is John Calvin. Now look what he goes on to say next, but this is even better. I've saved the best for last. When we see such minds, we must indeed confess that the devil possessed them. a lot of demonic possession in this church right now. And that God sets before them, us, them before us as mirrors in order to keep us in fear. That's very strong language. So Calvin really believes strongly that the sun revolves around the earth. Now again, that's not a problem that he thought wrong about science. We have science we think wrong. There's no sin in having wrong scientific views. Here's the problem. When we tie our wrong scientific views to the Bible... That becomes a problem. Now you say, where in Scripture was he getting this? And I showed you a couple of passages last time. Let me just show you two more just briefly right now because I want to show you that John Calvin was no different than the writers of Scripture. The writers of Scripture thought the sun revolved around the earth as well. Okay? And I could show you many passages, but let's just do a couple. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. First Chronicles 16, 29 to 30. I could show you many. Isaiah, lots in the Psalms. Chronicles. Um, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Now, a lot of Christians will protest and just say, hey, those passages are metaphorical. But here's the thing. How come John Calvin, Martin Luther, the early church fathers, and the biblical writers didn't know they were metaphorical? I'll tell you why we know they're metaphorical. We know they're metaphorical because science has showed us beyond a shadow of a doubt that the earth revolves around the sun. Okay? That's how we know they're metaphorical. Now again, I know for some of you that makes you 
really uncomfortable, but I want to remind you of something that we spent some time on in one of the messages. God did not see fit to update the scientific understanding of the writers of Scripture in order to inspire them. He did not see fit to update, and I'm going to show you a, a very fun example in just a moment. He did not see fit to update their understanding of biology or astronomy or physics or any of the geology. He didn't see fit or geography. He didn't see fit to do that. This is the God we serve. He decided he could have, if he wanted to talk to people with a more up-to-date scientific understanding, he would have come later in history. But he didn't want to do that because he's God. He said, I want, to go to bat- I want to go to these people in the ancient Near East. And he's not mad at them for not knowing lots of stuff that we know today. He knows when he sees them, they've got this tiny little pre-scientific worldview that literally pre-scientific, it's not even scientific, it's not even backward scientific, it's pre-scientific. And there's lots of things they have no idea about the universe, and God doesn't go in there and blow it all to pieces and talk to them in ways that go way over their heads. This is the, this is the glory of our God, the incarnate God in Jesus Christ, that he comes down into their worldview, doesn't blow it all apart, comes down and speaks to them in a way they can understand. And by the way, if that bothers you, I want you to think about the fact that God continues to do that with us today. In order for him to speak to you and I, does he have to update our understanding? Because if he had to update it all the way to what he has, blow our minds. We can't get it. We can't get it. If God talked to us in scientifically correct terms that only he knows, we wouldn't get it today. We are closer like, we're, we've come a long way since the ancient Israelites, and yet the distance between us and them is a lot closer than what it is between us and God. So he's still accommodating us today. He's still accommodating us today. Now, let me show you an example, and I could show you many examples in the Old Testament where the Old Testament writers had an ancient view, and of course they had an ancient view. They couldn't understand anything else. If God had talked to them in terms, modern terms, it would, the Word of God would not have been revelation to them. They wouldn't have been able to understand it. But I can show you many places in the Scriptures where they thought the, earth, the sky was a hard dome, the earth was a flat round disk, the earth was floating on a deep abyss of water. I can show you all of that. But I want to show you something more fun. Did you know that the writers of the Old Testament thought that your brain is in your kidneys? And you can find this dozens of places in the Old Testament. Pretty much every time, or many of the times, most of the times that you read the word mind in the Old Testament, do you know that the Hebrew word behind mind is actually literally the word for kidneys? I'll show you just one, Psalm 26, verse 2. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Now, the word there translated mind is the Hebrew word kilia. It literally means kidneys. So if you actually read this literally, it looks like maybe it's a urine test or something, but test my heart and my kidneys? (laughs) See, then you have to understand what the ancient people, they had no idea. Like, it just, it makes no sense to us. How could you think? How could they think? How could they know that the mushy stuff in your head is the stuff that makes you think? So they had other ideas, and they had a whole bunch of reasons why. We don't need to get into that. But they thought that your thoughts, your brain, your mind was in your kidneys. Okay, now our English translators look at that and they rightfully translate it as mind because that's an idea. Now, again, some of you are worried, oh, 
oh, what you're saying means we can't trust the Old Testament. It's not true. It doesn't affect it. God spoke truth. What we just have to remember is God spoke truth to a people over 3,000 years ago in the Old Testament. He spoke in that worldview. It doesn't change what this passage teaches. It doesn't change it. Does God know your thoughts? Yes. Whether they're in your brain or in your kidneys, he knows your thoughts. Now, this is where some Christians who want to build themselves a little wall and feel good about themselves rather than actually trusting the Word of God that it's actually big enough to handle the biggest attacks out there who are far too overly literalistic and don't do it out of a bad place. They do it out of a zeal to defend the Word of God. But I think sometimes it goes beyond a zeal to defend the Word of God and it comes out of a fear that maybe the Word of God can't hold up against the best the world has to offer. But in their zeal to be overly literalistic, they come along and they say, oh my goodness, all these years the translators have been fooling me. It's kidneys, not brain. And they want to take everything absolutely literally. So they say, well, if the Bible says kidneys, then it's kidneys. So now they have to come up with a whole new science. They start a website. They start producing pamphlets. They get a couple of experts on their side and they start telling everybody, and I'm serious. This is the kind of stuff that happens. Literally, and again, I just have to say this stuff from stage. I'm okay with that. This is stuff like the flat earth. This is what happens. And it's a growing movement out there. We've talked about that and, and laughed a little bit. But that's where this stuff, the kind of ways it starts. But it's not just flat earth. Now you turn out all this stuff and you tell everybody that medical science is lying to us. They're all lying because they don't want the Bible to be true. And they want you to think that your thoughts come from your brain. And they question everything and they say, has anyone ever actually seen a thought? How do we know it's coming from the brain and not from the kidneys? And this is what they do. They question everything. They accuse medical science of being against. This is the approach some Christians have taken to defending the Bible. And I think it's the wrong approach, even if it's well-intentioned. We have to not be afraid. We don't have to hide and we don't have to be afraid to say that God spoke to people 3,000 years ago and inspired it 3,000 years ago because that's what he chose. He's not embarrassed about it, and neither do we have to be embarrassed about it. And then it becomes very kind of intellectually. See, the moment you realize that, there's all kinds of things you don't have to defend because that's one of the common things. You go on the web web out there, and some of the things people throw, hey, the Bible says this, and the Bible says that. And you just say, Why are you accusing the Bible of trying to be something it's not? The Bible is not trying to be a modern scientific textbook. It's God's revelation to an ancient people. So, let me sum this up now in a statement I think is very, very important. Because the teaching of the Bible does not change. Some of you are worried, and again, this is that fear. I just want to be in my little walls. Just make it easy for me, and it's all good. I think this is a far better confidence that you come through. Okay? I think it's a, a far better confidence that you'll become, come through. But I really think, because again, none of this changes the teaching of Scripture. When it says right or wrong, when it says God created the world, he created it. When it says there was a flood, he, cre- he did it. There was a flood. There was a catastrophic flood. Okay? Um, but we need to be cautious about attaching. This is so important. This is the line I want you to remember. We need to be cautious about attaching scientific statements to passages of Scripture. That's just true. We need to be cautious about taking, just like John Calvin and Martin Luther. When you attach, and let me tell you why. First of all, is it not true that science is constantly growing and changing? Isn't that true? 
What happens when you attach something that is growing and changing to something that is eternal and unmoving? The drywall starts to crack when they're shifting. Isn't it true? What do you do when you take your understanding of science today and say, this is what this Bible passage is teaching, and you put it like that? What happens in 50 years when your scientific understanding changes? What just happened to the Bible? Because you attach something temporary and changing to something eternal, you just brought disrepute to the Bible. You made it look like the Bible went out of date when it's just the science that went out of date. Do you see the genius of God to give us a word that, that doesn't change? It doesn't make it less true. It doesn't make it less true at all. Science just tells us things about the natural world. The Bible tells us God created the world, and there are many scientific implications for that, and we've talked about some of those in this series. There, the more science marches on, the more uh, the more evidence we see for intelligent design, it's unbelievable. From the DNA to the gravitational constant to the, you know, the planets and the stars, it's amazing. So as science marches on, it only reveals more and more of God. But when we take our understanding today and try to put it into the Bible, it's always going to cause problems because science is constantly moving and changing. And so we need to be careful. So what does this mean in practice? Let me just make this super Super clear, because again, I'm not questioning the teaching of the Bible. Some of you will take it right away and you go afraid. Well, how do we know what the Bible's teaching? We know what the Bible's teaching, but we just have to remember because he's speaking to people 3,000 years ago, we don't need to take the scientific stuff. So here are some specific things that we should be very cautious about making hard and fast statements about the following. We should be very careful about making statements about the age of the earth and attaching those with scriptural authority. We just should. Now, I'm not saying Christians shouldn't have opinions about the age of the earth. I have an opinion. I've talked about it here in this series. I've read lots of books on that. I don't think, it's not that I don't think Christians should study these things or have opinions on these things. What we should be cautious of doing is making the mistake that John Calvin and Martin Luther and others made, who were intelligent, godly men, taking statements and tying them to the Bible. We should have opinions and then remember that the Bible doesn't actually say something about that scientific fact with the authority of, of God's Word. The shape of the earth, biology, fossils and geology, and the size of Noah's flood. Now, some of you are going, the size of Noah's flood? The Bible clearly says that, the Noah's, that Noah's flood covered the whole earth. And the question is, does it? Some of you are like, it does. Well, it does in Genesis 6 and 7, but do you know that the Bible has a lot more to say about some of the things in Genesis than just what it says in Genesis? See, a lot of people read the stories in Genesis and they don't think the Bible anywhere else talks about these things in Genesis. For, for example, Genesis 1 and 2, the creation, is talked about in a number of different places in the Bible. Job, Psalms, Isaiah. Let me read you an interesting one, Psalm 104. Here's a fun one for you guys to go home and do a little study. I don't, don't just take what I'm saying here today. Go home and look it up. I always encourage you guys to do that. Psalm 104 is a famous psalm that often gets quoted, but many Christians don't realize that Psalm 104 is a creation psalm directly tied to Genesis 1. Now, I, I wish I could take a whole message and break it down. But Psalm 104 actually follows the six-day order of Genesis 1, Except where Genesis 1 talks about things from God's view of how he created everything, Psalm 104 is a, praise, is a psalm of praise, worshiping God through the different days of creation 
for all that he's made. Now, you're saying, I never heard this before. You must be making this up. Now, you've, this, you've maybe never heard this before. This is pretty much every commentary of the Psalms will tell you this. I dare you to look some up at home. Every, every commentary on the Psalms written for centuries. You can look at Jewish commentaries going back centuries. Psalm 104, there's not, there's not even a debate among scholars, is a creation psalm based on Genesis 1. Now, Psalm 104 tells us a lot of interesting things that a lot of Christians have missed because we just stop at Genesis 1 and Genesis 6 and 7 and we don't think the rest of the Bible says anything to these topics. But David says some interesting things in here. So let's just read some of this and then we'll keep going here. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. By the way, there's another reference to the earth not moving. But this is clearly looking at the, I mean, again, and I, I wish I had time to go back and forth between Genesis and Psalm 1-4 and just do the whole chapter, it'd be a lot of fun. But this is, if you go back to Genesis, the first three chapters of, or the first three verses of Genesis 1, you know, where God creates light and he puts the fount, you know, the fountains of the, uh, he stretches, you know, God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He stretches out the heavens and all this sort of stuff and the earth on its foundations. Uh, Psalm 104 is just following along here. The first verses correspond to the first verses in Genesis. Gen and then now, verse 6, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. That's verse 2 of Genesis 1. Remember the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the, the waters, over the deep. This is all of Psalm 104, and you can see it. As you go in the chapter, it just becomes more and more clear. He gets in, in all in the order, and then the water animals and the land and all sort of stuff. Verse 7, at your rebuke, they, the waters, fled. Remember we talked in, the, in that message about the separation of the waters, how Genesis, how they viewed the, the universe as this abyss of water which got separated. And you see here David using, you know, worship language to talk about how the waters got separated. At your word, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose. Remember, in, in Genesis on day three, he separates the waters and the dry land appears. Okay, all of this happening. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed them. Now, this is interesting, verse nine. You set a boundary that they, the waters, may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. Now, that is a very interesting thing for David to say in this psalm. Because the whole psalm is about Genesis 1. And then David makes this comment under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says that that moment in the very beginning of Genesis 1 there, where he separated the waters and then he separated the waters below and the dry land appeared, he says that God put up a boundary so that those, that deep would never again cover the whole earth. And you go, well, well and again, look up the commentaries. Some commentaries where they are really, really set on, you know, certain views of the world and stuff, they'll say that this verse is an, ex that the flood was an exception to this verse. Or they'll try to make it that the rest of the chapter is about Genesis 1, and then this one verse kind of hops out to the flood and then back. But that's not in the context of this passage. David is just saying, when he separated the waters from the land, he said the deep will never again cover the whole earth. Now, you say, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, again, I'm not even telling you that you have to believe that Noah's flood was just local. That's not what I'm telling you. But what I am telling you, that you can still believe it's global. We can have a disagreement about this, and Christians will disagree about this, and that's fine. 
But what I want to say is there's a lot more mystery to some of these things going on than we would give credit for. You say, well, how on earth could Moses write that the waters covered the whole earth? And then David say this. I want you to remember something very clearly. God spoke to people those 3,000 years ago in that worldview, and I want you to remember something. Noah and Moses had no idea how big the the world actually is. Is that not true? They didn't know it was a globe. I said this before. There was no National Geographic globe on Noah's Ark desk, and he spun it. No National Geographic map. No satellite phone in his back pocket. He could phone his relatives in North America, which he didn't know existed. Say, is the flood over there too? That's not, that's none of that is there. He stands on the deck of the Ark, and he looks out. The most catastrophic deluge to ever hit the, hit the earth. And he looks out as far as he can in every direction. And all he sees is water. And then he says that the whole earth has been covered with water. Is he speaking the truth? Yes. Now maybe, see, and this is where we as Christians have been trying in our little walls here to be safe. And we hang our faith on the peg of how big Noah's flood was when the Bible itself is actually not as clear as people thought. And then someone comes along and they make fun and they say, you know the science, because did you know actually? And I'll, so I'll just tell you, this is just the truth. This is just the truth. The vast majority of geologists, and I'm talking like, we're not talking 80% or 90%. We're talking like 99%, including the Christian geologists. I'm not talking non-Christian. Christian geologists. There is a small, very small handful of geologists that argued that the flood covered the whole earth, the vast majority of Christian geologists today and many, many scholars, when they look into the ground, they say that the evidence in the ground says the flood was not the whole earth. Now, I go, you say, well, Chris, what are you telling us we have to believe? I'm not telling you you have to believe anything. You want to know why? Because maybe the science will change in 20 years and they'll find evidence that it was the whole earth. And 20 after, years after that, they'll find that it doesn't cover the whole earth. Here's what I know. A flood wiped out the world as Moses and Noah knew it. That happened. And there is actually a lot of evidence for a catastrophic deluge in the Middle East area. Maybe there's other evidence someday that will come to light that is also the whole world. But I'm telling you right now, the faith doesn't hang on that one. Does that make sense? So, but when we hang it on that and then hide in our little walls and try to be safe and not pay attention to any of the stuff out here, And then the geologists say, but yeah, but this isn't what we're finding in the ground. And then we just throw some like, here's a square footage of the ark. And yeah, see, it happened. You know what happens is they just laugh at us. And our kids go to university and lose their faith over something you should never lose your faith over. The Bible is absolutely true in every single thing it means to teach. But Noah and Moses are not trying to describe to us our modern understanding of geology. So my point here is we can stand for the truth of the Noah story and it's an important part of the biblical story and what God's plan of redemption, but we don't have to fight with people about whether it was the whole earth or whether it was less than the whole earth. I want to now read you. In all of this, we need to have a lot of humility. We can have absolute confidence that this is the word of God and that it is true. I'm more sure of that than ever before. But at the same time, we also have to hold this thing so that we don't create a bad taste in the mouths of of 
non-Christians, we have to hold this with a bit of humility and always recognize that it was written by an ancient people. And so now I want to read you an amazing quote. 1,600 years old, one of the great thinkers of church history. Some people call him Saint Augustine. We're evangelicals, so we'll just call him Mr. Augustine, okay? (laughs) But Mr. Augustine, writing in the 400s, wrote something in a commentary on Genesis, so very applicable to this series. And he was trying to write an explanation of how Christians should understand the book of Genesis. And he says some amazingly prophetic and powerful things. It's a long quote. We're going to take our time. We're just going to go through it. He says this. Usually even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and the other elements of this world about the motion and orbit of the stars and even their size and relative positions about the predictable eclipses of the sun and moon, the cycles of the years and the seasons about the kinds of animals, shrubs, stones, and so forth. And this knowledge he holds to as being certain from reason and experience. In other words, the first thing Augustine is starting off by saying here is just because a person doesn't believe in God doesn't mean they're absolutely ignorant and they don't know anything, and they're so biased about their beliefs that they can't tell us anything. His point is, non-believers can actually be very intelligent, and they can teach us lots about how the world works and what God has made, even if they don't believe in God. Now he's going to go on, he's going to build on that, and he's going to say some really profound things. He says this, Now, it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel. By the way, don't you love that word? Nowadays, Muslims use that of us, but isn't that just a great word? I just love to use it. I mean, it just means unbeliever. Now, it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture talking nonsense about these topics, specifically speaking of science, the observation of the physical world. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh at the scorn. The shame is not so much that an ignorant individual is derided. So Augustine's concern here is not that a Christian might get laughed at. His concern is that when we attach bad science to the Bible or whatever, or not, you know, carefully worded scientific statement, and we attach them to the Bible, it's not just, he's not concerned that we're going to get laughed at as individuals. He's concerned that they're going to write off the whole Bible. So he says, the shame is not so much that an ignorant individual is derided, but that people outside the household of faith think our sacred writers held such opinions. And to the great loss of those for whose salvation we toil, the writers of our scripture are criticized and rejected as unlearned men. If they, speaking of people in the world, find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions about our books, how are they going to believe those books in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven when they think these pages are full of falsehoods on facts which they themselves have learned from experience and the light of reason? I think that's a powerful quote, even 1,600 years later. So, when you're witnessing to someone, and even for how we prepare our children, I absolutely love science. We don't need to approach science with fear. I get emails from people, oh, my kids in university, they're learning about evolution now. Uh, Bring it on. 
Let's learn about everything. There is no way that you can explain how this universe got here the way it is. There's no way you can explain how the information in human DNA got there without intelligent design. And now I'm not afraid at all for a bunch of geologists, including the vast majority of Christian geologists, and I'm reading a big book on geology right now. I'm actually reading a couple of them. I just find this stuff so fascinating. And they look in and they have their explanations, and I go, wow, those are actually, that's pretty amazing how God has made the earth. It is actually amazing. And they're going to grow and they're going to learn more and more and more. But I'm not afraid of that knowledge. This is absolutely God's word. When it says thou shalt not murder because it's wrong, it's actually wrong. When it says marriage is between a man and a woman, that's what it was intended to be. When it says God created the earth, that's what happened. When it says there was a flood that God was kind of starting over, he was saving the messianic seed, it happened. Now when someone says to me, but whoa, 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 how can you say water covered the whole earth? There's no evidence for that and all that sort of stuff. I just say to them, well, you know what? The vast majority of Christian geologists actually agree with you. And I don't know enough about the science to argue with you, but Christians disagree about with it. So what I can say to you is this. The Bible doesn't teach that it has to be the whole earth. It teaches that it happened. And now let's talk about some other things. Let's talk about the storyline of the Bible. And you don't get hung up there. Does that make sense? And now you talk to them about Jesus and what Jesus has done in your life. And you talk to them about the problem of sin and where you see that in here. And you talk to them about the plan of redemption, starting with God created the earth and all the way through that all set it up. Now you really witness to them, but you don't have to go home and calculate the square footage of the ark. Does that make sense? I think it's actually a better approach. I think it's the right approach. And so let me sum all this up with this. We need to approach the Bible with a mixture of humility and confidence. Confidence comes from this book's inerrancy. Inerrancy means it is absolutely true and right in everything it means to teach. Humility says it's also very ancient. And God, in his love, just like he does with us, divine accommodation, came down and spoke to them where they were at so they could understand. And that's not only okay, that's beautiful. But it means, too, that we have to be, have some humility when we handle this thing, especially with regards to science. Well, let's finish with that passage we started with again, 1 Peter 3, 14 to 16. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We're to do it with gentleness. We're to do it with respect. I want you to close your eyes with me. I want you to bow your heads. and I want us to just let the Lord put one person on our hearts today. Who's that person in your family or in your workplace? And the Lord's saying, you need to reach out to them with the gospel. I've been really convicted the last little while again. I've, there's some people on my list that I had kind of just fallen off praying for. There's people in your life that Jesus desperately wants saved. Isn't that true? And we don't take any time. I'm not saying it doesn't have to be a rule that we do because we feel guilty, but to have a heart that regularly 
in the morning, we would take a couple of minutes and just lift that person up by name and say, Jesus, I want them to know you. That's what Jesus wants. That's what they need. I want you just to let Jesus put a name on your heart right now, someone who needs Jesus. And why don't we this week, as we're doing our abide journals and all that, it's super fun, why don't we add praying this for this person by name? It doesn't have to be a long time, but for a couple minutes every day. That name Jesus is bringing to your, name right, to your mind right now. We're going to pray for that name every day. Lord, I want this person to know you. But the thing is, I love how Jesus is a participation prayer. As soon as you start praying for someone, he's going to start nudging you. What are you going to do about it? Be a part of the answer. I want you to also ask the Lord, what can I do to reach out to this person? Let's just begin to pray. Lord, give us a creative idea. Maybe you've got to go for coffee. Maybe it's time to make a phone call you haven't made in a while. Maybe it's time to do something creative with this person, but reach out. And then don't just start by telling them about your faith. Ask them what they believe. Listen to them. Gentleness and respect. Listen to them and let your testimony come in response. Lord Jesus, right now, you're putting names in our minds. You're putting names on our hearts. And Lord, I just pray the most effective way of reaching people for you is not in a crusade, even though those are wonderful, is not on TV, is not in a church service, it's in relationship. It's the most effective way to reach people for you. Well, we got a lot of people in this auditorium here today. If we would each go out and begin to pray for one person today, reach out to them relationally, if even a tenth of those people got saved, it'd be incredible. So, Lord, I just pray, we're praying right now that you would give us creative ideas how to reach out to them. And, Lord, that you would give us faith as we pray, and we're going to see many people receive you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.